Hey, everybody. <laughs> okay, hi. Uh, Rose here, and this is the bonus podcast for the episode one child to rule them all. Just a quick programming note these bonus episodes are now going to come out on. Fridays, like today, um, just to sync them up with the Time Traveler Dispatch bonus episodes from the membership program. This is a new workflow for me. Obviously, this is all kind of new, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to do this in the most efficient way. But because the actual content of this bonus podcast and the Time Traveler Dispatch bonus episodes is going to overlap a ton, um, I'm just kind of trying to do them at the same time, basically. So that's that. Okay, before we get into any of the actual content, one other sort of like programming note, um, I am working on figuring out a way to provide transcripts for these bonus episodes. Um, I do transcripts for all of the main episodes for both Flash Forward and Advice For and From the Future, and I put those up on the website, so every time there's an episode, there's a blog post, obviously, that goes with it with all the show notes and links and stuff, and then at the bottom of that, you'll find the transcript. Um... The question that I've always kind of struggled with for these Patreon bonus episodes is just sort of where to actually put the transcripts. Um, I don't want to post them publicly, obviously, since these are bonus episodes and they're a perk for you um, and for people who, you know, donate to the show. So figuring out where to actually put transcripts so that they're easy to find for people who might want them has been kind of a little bit of a stumbling block. Um... Obviously, I could make a new post on Patreon for each of these bonus episodes with the transcript of the bonus podcast, um, and I can do that. The only thing that's kind of weird about that is that then if you are a listener, you have to like rifle through all your Patreon posts to find the bonus podcast transcript. Um, I am That's what I am going to do for now, so I'm going to post the uh, transcript of the bonus podcast on Patreon um, in your feeds. Uh, just so that it's somewhere, but um, let me know if that's annoying for you to get those posts since they're like decoupled from the actual podcast itself, um, or if you would prefer a different way of accessing transcripts. I can kind of try to figure something else out. I'm just trying to think about how to do this in a way that is like easy and accessible and not like impossible to find for people. So let me know what you think. Okay, now on to the actual sort of content. Um, this week's episode, One Child to Rule Them All, about a one-child policy, um, it was kind of like a heavy one. It was sort of intense to report and to think about. Um, but like I said in the episode, I wanted to do it because I do get asked this question a lot. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people who are my age are thinking about and talking about a lot. I know a lot of friends of mine have struggled with this question um, and it's something that, you know, comes up and we talk about. Um, and I don't think that most of the people who ask this question are like bad people or eco-fascists or whatever. I think that they just don't realize that like this question comes from a very specific place. And so I really wanted to kind of help make those links for people and sort of reveal some of that history um, and some of those connections to, you know, literal fascism and racism, which is, you know, obviously bad stuff. So I hope that was helpful. Um, I do hope that it kind of helps people who are struggling with these questions to maybe feel slightly less pressure or sort of less freaked out about it or maybe just kind of like help you understand perhaps why this question feels extra fraught and complicated. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just hope hopefully it was useful for people. <laughs> Um, okay, so a couple things that I did not include on the episode just because it was already really long and I, I really try to keep episodes under an hour. 
I, it's sort of an arbitrary thing, but for me as a listener, if I look at my podcast app and I see that there's an episode and it's over 60 minutes, I'm just like, ugh, who has time for that? Um, I know that other shows that are amazing go over an hour, but like for some reason that's sort of in my head that, that every episode should be under an hour. So um, this one was cutting it very close with the ads. Some of you may have seen more than an hour um, depending on which ads you got served. Uh, and so I hope that it wasn't a deterrent for listening, but um but yeah, anyway, there was a lot of stuff I didn't include because we were already very close to my uh, limit. So the first thing that I want to talk about a little bit is about the book Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. The book was actually written by Paul and his wife, Anne. They co-wrote it. It was not only written by Paul. And in fact, they even submitted it to the publisher together. The publisher knew that they were writing it together. It had both their names on it when they submitted it. But the publisher decided that there should only be one name on the book for some reason. And would you look at that? I know you're probably shocked that it wound up being the man's name on the book, Paul. So today, he is usually credited as the author, even though they actually both wrote the book. Um, here is actually Paul talking about this in 2018 for the podcast Climate One. You wrote it with your wife, Anne, but the publisher insisted on a single author. Tell us why and, and if, do you regret well, that? <clears throat> Ian Ballantyne, who was then the inventor of pocketbooks, and Dave Brower, who everybody in the Bay Area knows was one of the great original environmentalists, came to me and said, look, uh, if you and Anne can write this down quickly, uh, we'll publish it. This was in early, uh, we've been 68. Um, We'll publish it and maybe we can influence the election, which shows, of course, how naive they were, just like me. But then when the book was finished, they said, look, for publicity purposes, for getting it around, for getting the word out, it should only have one author. And I'm ashamed to admit that I folded on it and said, go ahead, don't worry about it. And uh, I still worry about it because uh, it was a good example of male chauvinism back in those days, which I collaborated with. So I will say that I don't necessarily recommend reading the book Population Bomb. Um, I mean, it starts like right off the bat. The first thing that you read in the book is a very racist anecdote about a trip that Paul and his wife Anne took to India. He and his family, they're in a taxi in India. I believe it was in New Delhi. It's on a hot, sweltering night. They're driving through town, and they're in a community, you know, that was densely populated. And he just talks about his visceral reaction to all of these brown bodies everywhere, and it was a reaction of overwhelming fear. And it's hard not to understand that through a lens of racism. And especially right now, I think we are all aware of what um, racist fears of other people and other bodies can do. That's Jade Sasser, who you heard on the episode. Now, weirdly, at the same time, back in the United States, Paul was actually trying to ally himself specifically with the Black community. Ehrlich was at great pains to declare himself not racist and, in fact, anti-racist. So after putting out this book and getting a very negative response from communities of color, he really reached out to black leaders at the time. He argued that um, 
he wanted to invite them to meetings and get them on board with the environmentalist agenda. And he went to great pains to reassure communities of color that he was not, in fact, advocating for racialized population control in the United States, that in fact, his focus was on middle class white communities, getting them to control their population growth to have fewer children and mainly to stop consuming so many resources. But it's very clear. He makes a very clear distinction between the ways that he talks about populations in the U.S. and out of the U.S. In the U.S., he's targeting middle class white people, getting them to exercise um, self-induced restraint. Outside of the U.S., it is very colonialist and, yes, quite racist. The other thing to say about the book that I did not get into on the episode is the prediction that we would have these global famines in the 70s and 80s, you know, obviously didn't happen. Um, And they didn't happen for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that they did not happen is that there was something called the Green Revolution, also sometimes called the Third Agricultural Revolution. The Green Revolution really started in the 1950s with a series of new technologies that made food production way more efficient. But even when Paul and Anne wrote this book in 1968, it wasn't totally clear yet how impactful those technologies were going to be. Um, Today, we know that, in fact, there is plenty of food for the human population. This idea that food production is always going to be outpaced by population, we know to be not true. Um, that's not the issue. And even like Paul admits that, right? So here he is again on Climate One. Isn't that fair to say that you underestimated the world's capacity to, to generate a lot more food with new technology? It's fair and unfair because, first of all, uh, the estimates we took and cited were from agricultural economists. Uh, and I think the general mistake, which I certainly shared because I didn't know anything about it, I was talking the people that we cited that were the new I'm no agricultural economist I'm more of one now than I used to be uh, but the uh, uh, the technology was clear what we were worried about more than anything else was how rapidly it could spread and what was underestimated was the brilliance of many subsistence farmers who knew a lot more about what they could do on their land uh, than a lot of the people who had industrial agriculture. But it's certainly, there are a bunch of mistakes in the population bomb. So I did not really have time to get into the Green Revolution, in part because it is a very large topic and a very long story. And it's sort of a can of worms to start talking about because there's lots and lots of questions and complications and nuance to that whole thing. So I just didn't want to like get into it. Um, But I just want you to know that I do know that it happened, I guess. Um, So that was something that I thought about including in the episode, but I did not because that's a whole other episode, basically. Okay, so moving on from Population Bomb, um, another thing I mentioned in the episode but I did not have time to really get into is this sort of rabbit hole that I fell into around sex disparity at birth. So you might expect, like I said on the episode, that you would have a completely even distribution of male babies and female babies born because, that I don't know, 50-50, right? Um, that is not the case. That's not what happens. Uh, Setting aside the fact that even biological sex is a spectrum, and there are not only male babies and female babies, scientists still see a disparity in the number of males to females born. And like Leslie said, it's something like 105 male babies to 100 female babies. And the question is, like, why? 
The short answer is that we don't actually know. Um, There are a whole bunch of theories, and maybe more than one of them can be true at the same time, I think. So some demographers have speculated that males are more likely to die early on, either because of health complications as babies or just from risky behaviors as kids and teens. So by the time you get to adulthood, the ratio evens out to about 50-50. Other scientists have theorized that male sperm might have a slight swimming advantage over female sperm to reach the egg first, which seems to sometimes be true during certain parts of a person's cycle, but isn't always true. It's sort of unclear. There is also some research that suggests that females are more likely to be lost in the womb than male fetuses, so you're more likely to have female stillbirths, for example. But really, we don't actually know what is going on here or why, which is really interesting, right? It seems like a pretty simple thing, and it's actually quite complicated and hard to figure out. One other interesting thing I learned in researching this is that some people actually think that climate change might impact this ratio. So one study looked at births in Japan and found that when there are extreme weather events, which we think are going to become more common uh, because of climate change, the ratio of male and female babies born after those extreme weather events actually evens out. So they specifically looked at 2010 and 2011 in Japan, which were this really, really hot summer followed by a really unusually cold winter. And nine months later, they found a decrease in the number of male babies born to kind of even out that ratio. Now, not everybody agrees with this research. So some other studies have shown that there's kind of no effect of weather or temperature. Um, Other research shows that warmer temperatures might increase the ratio. So it's actually very unclear still. We really just don't know. Okay, the last thing I will say here is just a little bit more about Leslie's book, um, which talks about adoption and China and sort of soft power. Um, I definitely recommend the book. Actually, both Jade and Leslie's books are totally readable. So I read a lot of academic books for Flash Forward, um, and some of them are really dense and clearly written for an academic audience and kind of hard to get through um, as a layperson. Um, Whereas these two books, I would say, are actually really readable. So if you are interested in these topics, I definitely do recommend picking up these books. Um, Both Jade's book and Leslie's book are actually totally fascinating and and very readable for for academic books. So um, I definitely recommend them. Um, So in Leslie's book, she argues that opening China up to foreign adopters is this political move. Um, And, you know, we don't really like to think about babies and particularly orphan babies as being sort of like political pawns, but they totally were basically. Um, And so China decides to allow Americans, mostly, you know, Western wealthy nations to adopt babies. And that's like a very specific strategic decision, right? Um, Some places in the world do not allow Americans to adopt babies. So Russia very famously closed its doors to American adoptions back in 2012. And that was pretty clearly linked to, you know, sociopolitical tensions between the two countries, right? So this is, you know, these children do end up getting caught in between political powers. Um, But so China does decide to let Americans in. And so I just wanted to play you a little bit of tape um, of Leslie talking more about that and about her book, just so you can kind of get a better sense for it. I basically talk about how, you know, like like a lot of places, social services and, um, you know, care for children in China has been it's that's been one of those realms that's been like heavily under invested um, while the, the government has focused so much on, on building up like the infrastructure and the economy, things like, you know, funding 
child care and elder care, especially for children who've been abandoned, um, who often have disabilities, um, cast out of their families, they're, they're really kind of on the bottom of the social hierarchy. And so very little government money has actually gone to them. And one way of kind of dealing with that was to reach out to Western countries and to American parents in particular and have them bring financial resources with them. So, you know, adopting from China, adopting from any country is expensive. Um, China is not more expensive than other places, but it has a very long running program, right? So, it, you know, at this point, I think the, the price is probably about twenty-five dollars to $30,000, like the entire process. Um, and parents had to bring um, thousands of dollars in cash in their suitcases and hand it over as a mandatory orphanage donation when they picked up their children. Um, they also had to go to China and stay there for, you know, sometimes, who knows, 10 days, two weeks, and they would travel and be tourists and adopt their kids. Um, an entire industry really kind of popped up around it. And then the orphanages that were involved um, with international adoption got a huge influx of resources. And so those resources have really helped make these places much, much better um, in terms of conditions for the children who are still there. Um, but it's also been a way to, for, for some people to make money. And so I basically argue that like, that's one of those things that, you know, international adoption really opened up this like flood of resources um, coming into China and not just through adopting kids out, but also um, by allowing, you know, Western volunteers or NGOs to come into Chinese orphanages and use their own resources to care for the kids who are still there. So in many ways, you know, it was kind of a good deal for the Chinese government. Again, if you want more, I definitely recommend her book. I will link to it in the show notes for this bonus podcast episode, so you can kind of go read it if you want to. Um, it's super, super interesting. Okay, that is everything that I cut from this episode or did not include for time. Um, again, it was already kind of a big thorny topic, and I hope that it was useful for people. I hope it was interesting. Um, yeah, I hope you checked out some of the resources on things like reproductive justice. Um, if you want to hear more about having kids, more on the advice side of the thing, about whether you personally should have a child, um, again, you can check out Tuesday's episode of The Advice Show. Um, it includes a little bit more of me in and also a little audio essay that I wrote about parenthood um, and what that might be like. Um, it includes some really interesting archival audio from the UK from many years ago. So hopefully you'll check that out. I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. The last thing is that sort of on the production side of things, just like, you know, behind the scenes, what I'm doing day to day. Um, mostly I'm just trying to kind of stay on top of everything and I am hoping to really get into a schedule for both these shows. So now that I'm doing two shows, which basically means I'm making an episode a week instead of an episode every other week, I'm trying to really stay on. I made myself an editorial calendar and I'm trying to really stick to it. So, um, that I can avoid being behind, but also, and this is like the big goal, the big thing, um, is that I'm hoping to hire a part-time audio editor soon to kind of take some of the pressure off of me in terms of just assembling rough cuts and doing some of the sort of more um, basic audio tasks that I can do, but, you know, might not be the best use of my time at this point. So when that happens, when I have a job posting up for that, I will be sure to tell you and I will link to the job and all of that. And this is a paid position, um, you know, 
I get a lot of emails from listeners offering to help for free. Um, and that's so kind and I really appreciate that, but I don't believe in unpaid internships. I think that those are sort of exploitive and tend to skew the industry towards people who can afford to do unpaid internships, which is not everybody. So um, I'm excited to be in a place now where I can, you know, actually pay someone and um, hire people and sort of make sure that they are getting paid market rate for their work. So when that job posting is up, I will let you know. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye.